Chapters 4 and 5 are considered the second section or the second part of this letter, this first letter to the Thessalonians. Chapters 1 through 3 were composed primarily of expressions of appreciation and regard for the Thessalonians. And Paul's intent on doing that was to remind them that he deeply cared for them. He, he really did care for them. His actions uh, really proved that while he was among them. He had been like a mother and like a father. He used both of those illustrations. But possibly he also wanted to defend himself if perchance there were somebody who was suggesting that the real reason Paul didn't come back was that he didn't care enough to come back. And Paul denies that. And in fact, in chapter 2, verse 18, he says that Satan hindered his coming. He didn't explain that about how he hindered it or in what way he hindered it. And so we don't know, but Paul had that strong feeling that Satan had stopped him from coming back. Now when we get to chapter 4, Paul is going to admonish and exhort these brethren in practical matters. And those practical matters, if understood and accepted and practiced, were going to help them to have excellent lives. Lives that would honor God and please God. All, almost all, I would say, of Paul's letters have a practical part to them. Generally, in Paul's letters, he starts out and writes a lot about doctrine, teaching, and then before he ends the letter, he always turns to those things uh, that are a part of our life and how we can put into practice what we know is right. I, I don't know if you'd call the first three chapters of First Thessalonians really doctrinal, uh, although they do teach and we learn from them, but they're not expressing new doctrinal truths. They're just statements showing uh, his regard and concern for them and all of that. Now, Paul has already commended these brethren. Remember back at chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1 and verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. And then in verses 6 and 7, he says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. You are an example to the believers, he says. But commendation does not necessarily imply completion. And Paul understands, as we should, that there's always room for improvement. No Christian should ever be arrogant enough to say, I am as good as I can possibly be, or I do this as well as I could possibly. No, no, no. 
Always room for growth. Now, we may not grow, but there's always room for growth or improvement. Some of these admonitions are going to address what we would call universal needs. That is what all Christians need. And, and perhaps as we look through these, some of the others may be given due to circumstances in which uh, the Thessalonians lived. Some could have been prompted by what Timothy had observed when he had gone back and visited them to check on their faith and to see how they were doing. And when Timothy returned to Paul, he may have reported to Paul, this is what I have seen, and this is what you should know about the Thessalonians. In any case, whether these are universal or whether they're specific, all of them are going to be valuable. I hope we see that. I'm going to try tonight to limit my comments to no more than 12 verses. We may not get through 12. And then next week, uh, I want to finish 13 through 18 or whatever is left before 13. Uh, let's look a little bit at Paul's exhortation. Um, in, in chapter 1, I mean chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. In verses 3 through 8 of this chapter, when we get there, we're going to see Paul dealing with the need for personal purity. And, and this is going to be in spite of living in an environment that is not pure, an environment in which people don't honor God's will for morality. But even before getting to the specifics that Paul will mention in those verses, Paul would have the Thessalonians to understand how serious he is about this and how serious they need to be about it. Because he's going to say, he says to them, we urge and exhort you. We're going to come back to those words in just a few minutes. I'm using the New King James Version. Some of you aren't. But if your translation, as mine does, starts with finally, and most do, I think. Some might be concerned about how, why Paul begins this session section with the word finally. Because he's going to write two more chapters. Uh, and, and we need to understand that that word doesn't mean what we often think it means. Or conclude it means. Literally it means as for the rest. As for the rest that I need to tell you. And it simply points toward the completion or the conclusion of the remarks that he needs to make. This is where we're going. This is the rest of it. Incidentally, if you look at 2 Corinthians 13, for just a moment, 2 Corinthians 13, the final chapter of that letter, you will see that Paul uses a very similar approach in verse 11. 
Second Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. But notice he goes ahead and gives other things. Be complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another, all the saints greet you, and so on. And so Paul's just saying it there to the Corinthians as he does to the Thessalonians. As for the rest, here's how I finish. Incidentally, I can't let this pass. You might have heard preachers say, and finally, doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> when we said it doesn't mean a thing, it just means I got to get you to believe I'm going to be through in a little bit. So finally. And some are sitting out there saying, finally. I know that. Okay, he says, finally then, brethren. And, and this is a term of close relationship, and, and, and it's used frequently in the scriptures. We are a family. God's people are a family. We're brothers. It's not just brothers, but brethren, brothers and sisters in a family of believers. And, and that's the way Paul is approaching. Finally then, brothers or brethren, we urge and exhort. Those are almost synonymous words in the original language, and likely, likely he uses both of them for the sake of emphasis. We, we really mean this. We're urging it. We're exhorting you. These are important things. But I want you to notice this. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ, or in the Lord Jesus this is not Paul urging them to listen to him because of his authority. This is by the authority of Christ. And, and, and the apostles, Peter, Paul, others, all presented their message with the understanding that people would realize this is not my message, this is God's message through me. Some don't understand that, but it is the way it is. Paul was going to exhort them not about unfamiliar things, but rather in matters in which they had really already been schooled. And someone says, well, why would he do that? Well, because we need to be reminded of things, believe it or not. Sometimes we forget and sometimes we need our memories jogged again and again and again to remember those things that are really important and that we really know. Now, when he says here, we urge and exhort you that you should abound more and more, he, he is referring to the oral teachings which they had received while Paul and his companions were with them in Thessalonica. And, and we'll see more of this as we go through the next few verses. They had already heard how they ought to walk and to please God. The, the word walk, as you know, relates to life, living life, the life we live. The walk is the way we live. And so Paul is urging them to walk in that right way and the result of the walking in the right way is that God will be pleased. If we do what is right, God will be pleased. Now, note again, because this is important, that you should abound 
more and more. They should continue in and even improve what they were already doing. This is not a condemnation. He's not condemning them because they're not doing what's right. But it is a concern that they not get satisfied with what they've already achieved. One of the great dangers in our spiritual life is self-satisfaction. Self-satisfaction. Now, I suppose that this message, you need to abound more and more in the things you're already doing. That message could have been received in different ways. There could have been some who said, is this guy never satisfied with us? You know, is he, is he picking on us? Or someone could have said, I'm doing the best I can. Don't ask any more of me. I hope not. I hope instead there were people who said in their minds, I'm thankful that Paul wants me to grow spiritually. And I'm also thankful that he really believes that I'm capable of improvement. You see, if Paul asks them to abound more and more, he's not trying to ask them to do what they can't do, but what they should do and can do. I had to ask myself when I thought of that, how would we have taken it if Paul had said, Graber Road, you're doing really good. You know what? You need to do better. You need to keep on working and you need to keep on improving. Yeah, you've got some strengths, but don't be satisfied that you have some strengths. Make those strengths even stronger. Now, in verse 2, Notice, you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul is telling them, you know what we taught you. And you know the source of what we taught you. The, the apostle wants to make sure that they understand that these instructions are through the Lord Jesus. Not through Paul, but through the Lord Jesus. Having said that, or written that, he, he gets in verse 3 to the specifics. And here it is. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. We're, gonna, we're, we're going to we're gonna notice a couple of things about sanctification. But, but the immediate thing that he says for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger of all such as we forewarned you and testified. Here's God's will. What is God's will for you, your sanctification? God's desire is that you 
be a set-apart people. The, 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 the word sanctification, unfortunately for us, is one of those Bible words that many people are not really familiar with because it's not a word we ordinarily use. <laughs> we just, you know, in our daily conversations, we don't talk about sanctification. That's a, that's a Bible term. Nothing wrong with that. It's just that it is not familiar to some. And if something is really sanctified, the, the heart of that word, the root meaning of that word is to be set apart. Something that is sanctified is set apart in a spiritual context for a holy purpose. For a holy purpose. Uh, one of the things that might make sanctification more difficult to understand for a lot of people today is that it applies to us at different times. And, and unfortunately that confuses some. 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul tells the Corinthians, you were sanctified. You were sanctified. That didn't mean you're no longer sanctified, but he just tells them there is a time in the past when you had become sanctified. That happened when they were baptized into Christ. That is when they were set apart for a holy purpose, when they entered the body of Christ and God added them to his kingdom. But sanctification is also a state that is to be maintained. That's what he's talking about here in chapter 4, verse 3. It is the will of God, your sanctification, your continued sanctification. But in chapter 5, if you look at verse 23, now the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify you completely. And so there, there is coming a time and, that we will be sanctified completely, hopefully. And that indicates that sanctification is a goal. Yeah, I was set apart back here when I became a Christian. I better stay set apart. And I need to work toward complete sanctification. Holiness. Holiness is another of those terms we don't really use much and don't understand. And it would be worth effort to try to look at the word holy as it's used in the Bible and holiness as it's used. So how is this sanctification of the Thessalonians to be seen? Well, first of all, in abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, I don't think we should necessarily think that Paul is aware that some people in Thessalonica, in the Lord's church, are involved in sexual immorality, as he writes. I don't believe that there's a there's a legitimate argument for that. And yet, Paul knew how prevalent sexual immorality was in the society in which they lived and that surrounded them. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but there are, in the New Testament, a number of lists uh, that are given in places like Acts 15, 
1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 12, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. Every one of those lists mentions sexual immorality. List of sins. Every one of them. Now, I don't think that's happenstance. I don't think that just happened to be. It's an indication of how prevalent sexual immorality was at the time of the writing of the New Testament. You know, Jewish standards of morality weren't very good at all. But they were great compared to Gentile standards of morality. And the Thessalonians living in a predominantly Gentile environment would see that all of the time. They didn't have to have a television to see it. They didn't have to go to a movie to see it. They knew that it was there because it was everywhere. Their friends, their neighbors, maybe even their own family members, they saw it again and again. And boy, I'm glad we don't have that problem. If you don't recognize sarcasm, that was it. Let me tell you this, and you know it. Here's the danger. What becomes and is common becomes very easy to accept. What, what is common becomes very easy to accept. I can venture to say that there was a time when you were watching television and some situation came up that was clearly immoral and you, the first thing you said is, get that off. Turn that off. I don't want to see that. Do you still do that? A lot of people don't. Why well, is the price we have to pay for entertainment to see that garbage? And we see it paraded into our homes again and again and in all kinds of situations. People you work with, people that you know, your own family members perhaps, they're involved in all of that and it becomes so common that we don't get concerned about it. We may even say, well, that's just the way it is. Okay, Paul uses four terms, or verse four, no, Verse 4 uses a negative term first, abstain. Well, at verse 3 uses it. Verse 4 turns from that to the positive. Here it is. First of all, he said in verse 3 that you should abstain. That's the negative. Stay away from it. Verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, here's, we're going to have to do a little extra digging here. And excuse me if I turn up more than the shovel ought to. The, the word that in the New King James, vessel, is literally vessel. That's what it is. The Greek word means only vessel. The Revised Standard Version 1952, generally considered its date, translated wife, each one should take a wife. There's no justification for doing that. The word's not wife. But the ESV 
English Standard Version, commonly used by a lot of people. It's okay. And the NIV translated body. Well, I want you to know the word's not body. It's vessel. And, and here, is, here is the danger of a translation telling you what you should think a word represents rather than telling you the word and letting you figure out what it represents. I think some, sometimes people don't understand that sometimes translations become commentaries, not translations. And the more literally correct a translation is, and many translations have gotten away from this, the more literally correct a translation is, the more it requires us to look at the words carefully and say, what does that word mean? What does it represent? Rather than having the translator say, here's what you ought to think about that. Okay, now, commentators looking at this verse don't agree on whether this is referring to one's wife are one's body. I see, I told you the word is vessel. I didn't say that the vessel couldn't be the body. But I'm saying that in understanding, even if you take the word vessel, does that mean body? Or was the RSV right with wife? And there are commentators that argue both ways. And some of the arguments are rather strong. So how do we decide? Is it Possess your own body or take a wife? Well, I think the first question you ask in a situation like that is, does wife seem to be the natural meaning we get from the passage? And secondly, does a husband possess a wife? Since it's the obligation of each one of you, and that's what Paul says, each one of you possess his own vessel, if it's each one of you, then how could it refer only to a husband taking a wife? I think it's much more natural to take vessel as one's body. I think that's correct. And I think in that, the ESV and the NIV are correct in what they tell you that represents. They just shouldn't tell you. They should let you decide that. And back in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 21, you remember Daniel, I mean, David comes and, and he's running from Saul and his men need something to eat and the only thing that's there is that holy bread or bread that had been taken off of the altar and now it's okay for them to eat it except the question is asked, what about these young men? Have they kept themselves from women? In other words, are they, are they sexually pure? And David said, the vessels of these, of the young men, are holy. He didn't mean a pot. He meant them. They were holy. Their bodies were holy because they had not had sexual relations with women for a period of time. Now, you can study that more for yourself if you want, and I'm not telling you what you have to believe, but I'm saying you, you need to understand what it is. 
It's 1 Samuel 21, verses 4 and 5. Now, notice in verse 4 that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. You should know how. <laughs> if you know how, you have to learn it, don't you? You have to be educated to know it. And that education, of course, would come through the revelation of God's Word. How are you to maintain sexual purity? You don't just figure that out by yourself. Mom and Daddy don't just tell you that. God tells you how to do that. Alan, Sir. In the preceding verses, he uses the word you a number of times. person right that's true each one of you each one of you <laughs> that's right exactly he says in incidentally in verse 4 possess his own vessel in sanctification or holiness and honor you you, you need to treat your body not only do you not want to do sexually impure things you want your body to honor God. You want your body to honor God. And you can't do that being sexually immoral. Now in verse 5, he returns to the negative again. He had been negative, now positive, back to the negative. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Here's the contrast to holiness and honor. And that is, don't let your body live in a state of lust. L lust is wrong desire. Desire that has gone beyond proper limits. And he says, don't be like the Gentiles. Now somebody could read this, and I'm sure there have been people who have, and say, well, is this, is this an unfair stereotype of the Gentiles? Is Paul guilty of just throwing a blanket indictment over the Gentiles? No. In two ways. First of all, it was common among the Gentiles. If you doubt that, read Romans 1. That was the prevailing way of life, sexually immoral. And... and but Paul also noted the general character of the people in Crete. You remember that in Titus? Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, or the beginning of 13. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Then he says, Remember, he's writing by inspiration. This testimony is true. Now, does that mean every Cretan was terrible? No. But the general character of the people was that they were immoral. Just like the general character of the Cretans was they were liars. But secondly, Paul is writing and he says it about people who do not know God. The Gentiles who do not know God. 
If you're ignorant of the true God of heaven, you are going to fall into the trap of sin, which would include the trap of immorality. If you don't know God, what difference does it make whether you're immoral or not? And verse 6, that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we forewarned you and testified. It's interesting that some think that Paul changes the subject here. He's no longer talking about the matter of sexual sins. Now he's talking the matter of honesty in business matters. I doubt it. I don't think so. Because there is a natural connection here to what Paul has already stressed. You see, sexual sins always involve others. And taking advantage of a brother could very well mean by taking advantage of his wife. If you think that's far-fetched, remember not only Exodus 20 verse 14 in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. But verse 17 adds, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Not just I mean, they're connected, obviously, but not just don't be an adulterer. Don't take advantage of your brother's wife. Notice in verse 6, he says, in this matter. What matter? Sexual immorality, not a new matter. The old matter, sexual immorality. And Paul gives a very solid reason to obey this, and that is, God is the avenger of all such violations. Avenger is a very descriptive term familiar to anybody who has carefully read the Old Testament or the New Testament. Let, let me mention just very quickly a couple of just New Testament passages. We won't even look at those. Look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Verses 7 and 8. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. And then look at Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then finally look at Revelation, the 20th chapter, or 18th chapter, Revelation 18, and verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Raymond Kelsey, great teacher, great man, had this statement that I appreciate a lot. The consequences of failure to live in accordance with moral law are inevitable. You get that? The consequences of failure to live in accordance with moral law are inevitable. It's not going to be a maybe thing. It's not going to be a could be thing. It is that God is going to be an avenger of those who live immorally. 
You see that in Romans 1, don't you? How God gave them up, how God punished them. And not just those Gentiles in Romans 1, all people will see that come to pass by the time of judgment. And again, Paul wants this known. This is not a new teaching. We forewarned you, he said. We told you about it happening ahead of time. Now, in, in verse 6, as we, as, as we also forewarned you and testified, forewarned you and testified. And I'm not trying to pick on these versions, but let me just mention this. The, the NIV just has warned you, we warned you. The SV has solemnly warned you. I think the sense is stronger than either of those. Because Paul is saying we solemnly witnessed or testified to you. Paul uses this term only here and in 1st and 2nd Timothy. And, and it is a solemn testimony before God that he gives. We solemnly warned you. We didn't just say, hey, brothers, don't, don't get involved in that. He said, we warned you. We witnessed against you that if you do this, you'll pay the price. We're going to have to stop there, but let me, let me just finish this. <clears throat> it does not matter in our society if everybody thinks sexual immorality is okay, God's going to punish it. A lot of people are not going to know that till it's too late. But he's going to punish it. So what do we do? We keep ourselves pure. We keep ourselves pure. Thanks for being here.